Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your co-host for today's very special episode on this, the 15th of October in the year 2023. And joining me is the great and the glorious, the recently announced uh, co-writer of The Questions, a South Australian theatre company musical uh, that will be on in July of 2024. Uh, Also, of course, the writer of Fall in Love, a Sydney theatre company production, which will be on in February of 2024. He's so good, isn't he? (laughs) And uh, as always, and possibly even more relevant than ever, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. My wife, your friend, an avid campaigner for what is right and just, Dan Badham. How are you, Van? Well, Ben, I'm not great. Are you great? No, I, I don't feel great. It's I, a pretty bleak house today. And, yes, you know, I had the great – I'm trying to square the fact that I had one of the biggest nights of my life individually on Thursday when my new musical, The Questions, which I've written with my long-term musical collaborator, Richard Wise, was announced as part of the State Theatre Company season in South Australia for 2024. And this was in front of 900 people at the Adelaide Convention Centre. The director's going to be Mitchell Butel, who's one of Australia's great musical theatre talents and the artistic director of the SDCSA, Charles Wu, who is one of Australia's most extraordinary Extraordinary actors, a phenomenal singer is going to be the star. And also it, a star of an insurance commercial, I have to say. Yes, he's also <laughs> uh, one of the cast of The Importance of Being Earnest at the Sydney Theatre Company, which has been showing this month, which is amazing. And I just had that incredible moment surrounded by theatre people and I was uh, like I was asked by Mitchell because we were all doing interviews and promoting the the season for next year he was like people know you as a news commentator uh, a musical is really unexpected for people who don't know your theatrical work and I said well I love musical theatre because musical theatre is a place to put the feelings and to be in a room with people and to be together and to experience joy and sadness and have a channel that's outside yourself. And I talked about how when I was at drama school, we actually learn that musicals go gangbusters when times are tough, when yep. hope is hope is fading and, and things are bleak. And there's a direct correlation with the success of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cats and how miserable Britain was under Thatcher at the time um, and that there's this this index that when people are, are sad, people go to the theatre to find joy and to find hope and that's why it's always been so important to me. And, yes, I have been in Oklahoma and, um, and I'm really reflecting on just the events the past couple of days going you know, I I am a political person out of a sense of moral responsibility. Yeah. Uh, that has to do with the family that I'm from, which is a family of trade union members and, and people who really understood the power of solidarity. And, you know, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. He took up arms to fight fascism and imperialism mm, mm. because that was important. And I, I would much prefer to just write farces and, you know, and, and be in endless productions of Showboat. Like I, that's really the person who I am, but I have that sense of responsibility and I think that's true for at least six million Australians, whatever they do with their lives, that this sense of uh, solidarity and togetherness and community triumphs overall. And I think today in particular, those of us who did vote yes, who campaigned for a fairer Australia, it's a very disappointing day and we we have to remain true to the mission that brought us here in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. It is a it is a rough day. And you know, I, I posted something last night about however disappointed, uh, confused, angry, upset you know, I might be or you might be, um, it, it is really pales into insignificance for compared to what so many of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander comrades will be feeling today and over the coming days. Um, and, of course, you know, it has been 
extraordinary to see that the the remote voting booths uh, are overwhelmingly yes. Uh, the those indigenous communities in remote northern territory, remote parts of uh, the rest of the country, uh, have returned quite solid yes votes, but of course, such small numbers. We know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders only make up 3% of the entire population. Uh, and even in the Northern Territory, where people, I think, assume that Aboriginal people make up the majority of the population, they actually don't. Uh, so the Northern Territory has returned a no vote overall, but where there are large numbers of Aboriginal people, and when I say large numbers, I mean a few hundred High concentrations. High concentrations. Uh, they are overwhelmingly, uh, they were overwhelmingly yes. And so it is hard for, for those of us who did campaign, you know, and I want to shout out to the tens of thousands of, of Australian uh, people who were on booths, who did pre-poll, who handed out at markets and train stations, who door knocked, who made phone calls, who did letterboxing. You know, there was a point there where it looked like we were going to have a 70-30 no vote, you know, uh, and we didn't. And I think it's important to remember that referendums in this country have traditionally failed. Uh, of 45, only I think eight have ever got up. And I want to remind people that the reason why the government of this country, federal government, has no power to impose a rent freeze, I've mentioned this on the show before, the Greens' demand for a rent freeze is actually unconstitutional because twice in the 40s and the 70s, referenda have been put to the Australian people to give government the capacity to impose things like price controls and rent freezes, and the Australian people have rejected those both times, which is why it's off the agenda. Yeah. And you can see so many things. You know, we're not a republic because a republic referendum went down last time I voted in a referendum. You were too young, weren't you? That's right. Oh, my God, that's a shameful, shameful admission. (laughs) And... That, I mean, these are conclusive for a democratic country and the majority rules. And I think it's important too to remember that, you know, Bob Hawke never lost a federal election, but he did lose, I think it was five referendums. Uh, and whenever a referendum has not had bipartisan support, it has failed in this country. Uh, and I think there was a lot of hope that there would be bipartisan support for the voice. Well, there was support from really prominent Liberal Party identities, Julie Bishop, Malcolm Turnbull, John Hewson, you know, Julian Lisa, who's a current member of the parliament, um, Ken Wyatt, former Minister for Aboriginal Affairs under Scott Morrison. Well, unfortunately, the official position of the coalition was a no position. Uh, and I think, Van, once, once it becomes officially contested, a referendum starts to open up to other forms of argument. And this is the first referendum we've had since social media became a thing. I mean, the 99 referendum, uh, there was no Facebook, not really. No, there was no Facebook, 99 dollars. You know, there was no... It was basically newspapers, radio, and television. There was no streaming services, no catch-up TV, no video on demand, no YouTube. It was all traditional standard media. Uh, And the capacity to have contested sources of truth was much more limited. We've seen in this election, oh, sorry, in this referendum, some of the most egregious fallacies told to people. And not just told to people on social media, but told to people into the hansard from Liberal MPs in the government, uh, in the opposition. Yeah. In the parliament. And it's, I mean, I, I think it's been appalling. And, you know, I think I said to you earlier on, I've never seen a campaign succeed 
and succeed so well, so overwhelmingly well, that has been so chaotic as the No campaign. You had spokespeople for the No campaign contradicting themselves in the same interviews. You had spokespeople contradicting other spokespeople within the same day. Uh, You had things being said that were patently untrue. They would be called out on at the time and they would ignore being called out on. Uh, They would literally (laughs) be shown footage of some of the most egregious behaviour of abuse, uh, and then defend that, saying they their campaign volunteers, of which I did not see one. I did not see a single no campaign volunteer. I saw people online, you know, saying they were going to vote no and, and making some pretty outrageous comments, but I didn't physically see a no volunteer outside of a pre-poll booth, one pre-poll booth where I saw some no volunteers. Um who were not bullied. <laughs> there was there was no I I did not witness at any point in the many, many shifts that I did on pre-poll and on polling day, any yes person say anything negative to a no uh, volunteer or a no voter. Um, I did see uh, some no voters abuse yes volunteers. Um, but even the even the no people handing out, I got asked some very strange questions about why I supported a UN takeover, about why I supported the World Economic Forum, which, by the way, I'm not the hugest fan of that particular forum. But I got arrested protesting the World Economic Forum in the year 2000 on the 1st of September in Melbourne, where myself and a group of um of activists from the University of Wollongong came down to Melbourne in a car, joining thousands of our comrades on the streets protesting the WEF. So to be told that I, who received quite a nasty punch to the head in that particular um, political moment, and I just, yeah, you're a puppet at the WEF. I'm like, I noticed you weren't on the front lines, comrade, like when I was taking one for the day. It was very, very strange. And, we, um, you know, all of this has played out. September 11, 2000, the other September 11. Yeah. Anyway. And it's been, it's been amplified by social media. And I have to say, Van, you know, sometimes I know I can be critical of the mainstream media, but I'm going to be critical of the mainstream media again here. It is not the mainstream media's job just to report what people say as though everything someone says is true. And and we saw that again and again and again. We saw just the most egregious things repeated uh, as though somehow or another if, if Peter Dutton said it or it was asked as a question in question time, it had validity. There was no validity to the opposition, the opposition, the alternative government suggesting that somehow or another an advisory committee on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues was going to determine interest rates through the Reserve Bank or the location of defence bases. There is no validity to those questions. They are asked purely and simply to create chaos and confusion and to lead people to ultimately go, yeah, nah, it's all a bit risky. And we saw that with their slogan, right? Yeah, oh, no to risky voice and, oh, it's a risk, it's a risk. If you don't know, vote no. I mean, it really was, it's heartbreaking for us, I think, because you and I exist in an ideological space. I don't know if you've noticed listening to this show, but Ben and I come from a really explicit ideological tradition. We don't expect all Australians to share that. No. You know, but we talk about that honestly because the way that we commentate on politics and economics is through a very specific political lens. We are neo-Keynesian, laborist, democratic, socialist, and I have a strong uh, syndicalist and libertarian streak. And I can't grasp this I mean, I obviously can because I wrote a book about it, but morally I can't grasp. Intellectually I can, but morally I can't grasp the idea that we're moving into 
or uh, arguably have been in a phase since 2016 when these techniques were used to deliver the presidency to Donald Trump in the United States and then obviously Brexit in the United Kingdom as well. The idea that your pursuit of power and influence is more important than the truth. The way that Ben and I operate is that the truth exists and is important to us and we interpret that truth and our response to it through our ideology. You know, when we talk Mm. about things like is now the time to bank a surplus, Mm. well, yeah, actually, even though Ben and I believe in a welfare state and the five pillars of the welfare state and these traditional democratic socialist values about social welfare, all those things, we exist in a contingency where the economy and which we believe should serve all people mm. with equal opportunity, that that contingencies change and we have to be adaptable around that, around the facts of where we are and where resources get allocated, like and we interpret that reality through our ideology to find a correct moral position. Mm. And in a period of low unemployment, rising wage like r- rising wages in terms of the last 10 years, not they're not rampant, but rising wages, higher profitability, uh, you know, pipeline of infrastructure investment uh, and rising borrowing costs, now is a time to bank a surplus. That's actually that, that there, there is more demand for labour than there is labour. Now is a time to bank a surplus. Yeah, and now is also the time, and we'll talk about this in more depth, for us to ensure that the workplace is a, is a, a, a vector of economic stability and not a place for profiteering and exploitation. But what is happening politically, and this is what is so terrifying to us, is that the position being taken on on reality itself is subjective and expendable to the pursuit of power. And we are in a propaganda moment because the new technology of social media that that a lot of movements don't fully understand and they have very little resistance to. It is one thing to be a traditional conservative mm. and pursue a worldview that says, I don't believe, um, I believe that everybody should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and welfare shouldn't exist and, yeah, just because I inherited everything from my dad doesn't mean that I didn't make it on my own, you know, like, that is traditionally the left and right argued over different different responses to the facts. We didn't argue over the facts themselves. And we are now in a situation where you and I were told to our faces that the voice was an undercover land grab by the United Nations, and that is not true. No. There is no evidence at all that remotely indicates that's true. And I wrote about this on Facebook, and I do encourage people to go through the Facebook posts I've made over the past few weeks to get a handle of just how the disinformation has been operating online and what some potential responses to it are because they traced, when I say they, the ABC put some of their investigative journalists Mm. on, and this is the ABC whose charter obliges them to be independent. Mm. If they're not independent of the ABC, they end up before an inquiry. Mm. Um, They traced the, the vector of influence that was perpetuating this UN land grab claim to a woman whose name I can't remember. Nicola Charles. Nicola Charles, who was a British model who got a job on Neighbours as an actor and essentially never worked as an actor again years ago and occasionally turns up in the Daily Mail with an article about her weight loss or, you know, with a conspiracy theory that her Neighbours colleagues tried to have her deported. Like some, she's been in a place quite clearly. Well, Nicola Charles now calls herself the White Rabbit and runs a conspiracy channel and – an ex- this is a person who's never worked for the UN, never worked in foreign policy, is no academic or scholar in the field of foreign affairs, is not accountable to any institution for getting anything right. And I wrote about this in detail that I obviously have my critiques in the mass media because I've been targeted. I've mm. had the, you know, rare but not unique pleasure of being the subject of hit jobs by mm. um, Murdoch Publications and being attacked by Andrew Bolt and being attacked by Paul Murray and being attacked by Chris Kenny, who's now comrade Chris Kenny because he supported The Voice. It's very weird. We're quite in a place. But 
I mean, obviously that's not pleasant, hasn't been nice for me, but at the same time, a masthead news publication, if it's not Fox, has got to be held accountable. And if it is Fox, it's usually can't, it has just recently been held about accountable by the court system, yeah. hence having to pay out almost a billion dollars for um, defaming a company, you know, by spreading mistruths and misinformation about the 2020 election in the United States and attacking mm. the Dominion Voting Machine Company, who successfully settled with them for almost a billion dollars. And that accountability to a university or accountability to a masthead media publication or accountability to a government institution or any kind of policy forum, Nicola Charles, former Neighbours actor, she is under no such accountability and can have these absolutely bonkers, you know, like Mm. pseudo-analyses of things that are not true. And it is... It, it it was stunning to think how that – and it was essentially a meme, you know, mm. like a story from the internet. And by the way, the UN land grab conspiracy theory dates to the 1980s and to what used to be quite small groups of citizens militia in the United States who were the dudes who used to dress up in German warfare suits and buy guns and, and on the weekends go out with their friends and hide in the mountains and prepare yeah. for the, – the, the theory was that the UN were flying black helicopters into the United States – and, you know, dropping sleeper agents into Idaho and that they would all come out and seize your land and that's why you had to be, Ben is about to burst into tears, his head has just flipped in his hands. This is a really old conspiracy theory and they were fighting the New World Order. Yeah. Right? So this we've had 40 years of this and it's just been repurposed and repurposed and repurposed. That's the source of that conspiracy theory. And Nicola Charles does this quite impassioned, you know, speech, you know, quoting as her sources other sources that are not real, that are not real things, taking documents out of context and, you know, I mean, if there are much easier countries to take over, by the way, if the UN, which it, it comprises, what, 140, kind of 120, 140 countries from China to Russia, Russia to the United States of America to it's, Ireland. It's a, like- it's a meeting of diplomats who come together, who put forward the position of their nation state on issues that impact their nation state and their citizens uh, and sometimes agree to help each other out. You know, if there's a mass flood or a huge fire or a starvation event or a war or a pandemic, that's the purpose of the UN. It does not care about territory. There is no territorial ambition for the UN. The UN has no territory. The UN has a building. It has a building, a building that it has, which is UN. Right. So if you're a UN diplomat and you're in the UN building, which happens, I believe, to be in America, you can't be arrested by the New York cops. That's it. That's the only territorial kind of, you know, thing you get. There's no series of UN embassies. There's no UN army. Oh, the blue helmets of the UN. Those are soldiers of other countries. Australian soldiers will sometimes, and in fact, there are some right now serving in different parts of the world, wearing the blue helmet. And you know what they do? They protect the citizens of other countries who are under attack. That's what they do. They they are volunteers of armies of member states like Australia who go, I believe in global peace and protecting innocent civilians. So I will go to this horrible part of the world where terrorists or warlords or some splinter group have decided that the best way to seize power in their nation state is to murder a bunch of civilians. And I will try and protect the civilians, not pick which side wins, not help one warlord versus another. UN does not take sides. That's not what it exists for. Well, and it can't. I mean, at the moment, there are at least two member states who are actively at war with one another. One is Ukraine, one is Russia. Like, they are both members of the UN. There are multiple. There are multiple UN states at war with one another. And... And the person who is not an authority on UN behaviour is Nicola Charles... (laughs) Former neighbours actor. And Van, I want to I want to bring this I want to bring this back to to 
the experiences that we've had over the last few months because, you know, yesterday I had people on booths say things to me like, um, what's in it for me? And you try and explain what's in it for them as, you know, either in terms of being part of the oldest living culture in the world and, oh, that's not really for me, that's for them, they say, well, you know, this will improve policy delivery, save money. Uh, there can be... Stop waste. Stop waste. Oh, well, that just means we should have an audit. The reality is this became a culture war issue. And you and I have discussed before that in America, the, the political structure in America lends itself to culture war politics, lends itself to appealing to your base, revving them up, suppressing the base of your opposition because of voluntary voting, because of gerrymanders, because of the electoral college system. In Australia, our normal election cycle, our normal election system, we have compulsory voting, we have preferential voting. Uh, there comes a point where you get that majoritarian view, right? You get a kind of middle ground of people going, on balance, this is my set of preferences. I may not love this group, but I'd prefer that group over this group. Referendums are totally different to that, and people misunderstand the Constitution and misunderstood and misunderstand referendums. The referendum is a yes-no binary, and we talked about it on this show. It's a yes-no binary, and, and so it lends itself to people being afraid. Like when people gave... Aboriginal people, citizenship, the vote, everybody understood what that meant. With this, people didn't understand. They didn't take the time to understand. They chose to believe some of this misinformation. And the fear factor really kicked in. It, it's, a, it's a really stark contrast. I had people quote parts of the American Constitution to me about... <laughs> about freedoms that we don't have in our constitution. Our constitution is not like that. We are we are a constitution we have a constitution that is based on the powers of states and the commonwealth and who has what power to make what laws. It doesn't specify very much in the way of detail. We've had a few referendums that have added a few details here and there, but fundamentally it's about who has the power to make what particular sets of laws. It's not a Bill of Rights. It doesn't say citizens can do this or citizens have the right for this. It's about government appropriations, like yeah. fundamentally. And that was the context of our constitutional creation was the Federation of the States where independent, uh, the, the states, colonies. yeah, independent colonies Oh, God. Independent colonies that were developing their own laws and jurisdictions and regulations. This is why we have different rail gauges in, across different parts of Australia. We don't have a unified rail system because all these different uh, political communities existed that made different decisions about which rail gauges to use. And the process of coming together and federating as in Australia was about those it, like independent uh, com political communities working out how to function as one country without necessarily sacrificing their autonomy or and resisting you know the imposition of a universal ra rail gauge you know and and that's essentially what our constitution is about In fact, is about negotiating what powers the states will keep and what the new federal, federated government will have power over. I think there's even a line in the Constitution, I was reading it the other day because that's the kind of nerd I tend to be, uh, that says the Commonwealth will have the power to build railroads uh, in any state provided it has the consent of that state. You know, like that's that's what it was about. And, and it, this is why I get so... You know, it was a document written, started started in the 19th century by a bunch of white guys who were the only people who were allowed to vote. Um, women weren't allowed to vote. Aboriginal people weren't even recognised as people. Uh, and, and it was about how they would control different aspects of power in those different political uh, communities. 
and what this new community called the Commonwealth would have power over. And that evolved. Like the first 30 years of our Commonwealth, there was lots of referendums, high court decisions, you know, the the court of arbitration was established, all these things, uh, you know, we changed the number of high court judges, we put in term limits for judges, all sorts of things had to be changed because it turns out that... um, the 50 and 60 year old men in 1890 were not uh, on you know not fortune tellers and could not foresee all of the things that would need to happen now we had this opportunity with the voice and you know there's no question that the misinformation the undermining of it the the decision by some parties to act in bad faith has has set back the cause. But Van, I also want to point out that, you know, the struggle continues. Uh, This is not the end. Uh, This is just another misstep in the long journey for this country. Uh, We've had missteps before. We've had some horrendous missteps, not as bad as some countries, but some really bad ones. And I think it's important that we recognise that despite the outcome, despite the view of the majority of Australians being that the voice being enshrined in the Constitution was not the answer that they wanted, there is still work to be done to close the gap, to improve health outcomes. And we have to show solidarity with the 3% of Australians who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, I want to give a shout-out here to Australian unions. The ACTU is running a solidarity book where you can leave a message of solidarity because we've had people reach out to us. We've had lots of conversations in the last, um, you know, whatever it's been, 20 hours or so, where people are shocked, you know, uh, and people are deeply upset. You know, some of our very close friends who really had hope for this being the next step in reconciliation are clearly in shock. And Aboriginal people have, Aboriginal leaders have called for a a week of silence and mourning and to lower flags to half-mast. So do think about leaving a message of solidarity. You can check that out at the Australian Union's website. If you're not already a union member, I really encourage you to join. The union movement really got behind the Yes campaign. The union movement has stood in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country for a very long time. Uh, The Wave Hill walk-off was a real turning point in the relations between Aboriginal people and the union movement in this country. Um, I've personally, Van, and I know you you came to Darwin and and ran a... um, ran a campaign around the wage theft that Aboriginal people were suffering under and the stolen wages of Aboriginal people. I had the absolute honour of organising an event which not only challenged the wage theft from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers in Australia, but was a mobile museum. We created a mobile exhibition speaking to the history of the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been exploited in the workforce in and in the workplace in this country with all of these incredible historical materials that spoke to the Indigenous struggle for workplace fairness, which, by the way, has helped every Australian. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I think you and I, I mean, you and I are pretty down today. We're not going to lie, yeah. right? Just unvarnished. We're sad because this unbelievable solidarity from Black Australia to the rest of us. The the image that I kept seeing is the Matt Golden cartoon that came out today of a black hand reaching out for a white hand, and the white hand has its it is on a um a light a clicker. light a light clicker. And then in the next pane, it's just completely black that the white hand has turned yeah. off the light. And when 
First Nations Australians campaigned for wage justice. Like, do people understand that if you create an an exploitation category in the workforce that says these people, because of their race or their gender or their um, visa status, their visa status or their disability status or whatever else it is, if you create an exploitation criteria that says this group of people can be paid less, that means everyone is paid less than they're worth because you can always employ in the exploitation category and say to anybody who's earning marginally more, well, what are you complaining about? It's a totally effective way of suppressing wages for everybody. So the solidarity of Indigenous people going, if we stand up for our wage rights, we are standing up for everyone's wage rights, that equality of, of wages and that, that an equity in the workforce and recognition that that, you know, work should be well paid and work should be dignified and work should be all it takes to have economic purchase on the Australian dream, mm. that it, the idea that that solidarity is ignored or rejected by people is heartbreaking. I got everything out of doing that exhibition. I mean, working with those materials and creating that spectacle. I also got to work with Thomas Mayo, who I'd like to say quite definitively is one of the best Australians I've ever met in my life, yeah. who's a committed trade unionist, not just for black people, for all, all Australians, Australians. Yeah. for all Australian workers. And can I just say, not only for Australians, but, you know, is an MUA official dealing with workers from around the world, on yeah. ships around the world. Some of the most exploited workers um, from Africa, Southeast Asia, South America. Um, it, 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 is, it is a heartbreaking day because, you know, when you look at the numbers as they've come in, you do see, uh, you do see an element of uh, people or at this stage, the analysis looks like there is some people who have gone, there's nothing in this for me. I don't know anyone who's Aboriginal. I've seen Jacinta Price and Maura Mundane say vote no. I've got, you know, I'm working multiple jobs. Australia still has some of the highest levels of multiple jobs uh, we've ever had. We have some of the most unstable employment that we've ever had. We have people experiencing mortgage stress. More people have eaten of their savings uh, over the last uh, two and a half years than sort of ever before. We are, people are struggling and there does seem to be an element where the, the more you're financially struggling, the more you feel under economic pressure, uh, the less likely you were to vote yes to this. Uh, and we're seeing that. Like that's that's what the initial kind of numbers are showing and the seats that did vote yes uh, are generally seats where there is a higher um, level of economic security. <laughs> and that in itself seems to me to be counterintuitive because while I can understand, because you and I have both had periods of unemployment, we've had both had periods of low wages, living in terrible rentals, all those Grew things we've talked about before. parents who were in insecure work. My dad was unemployed. Like, we've been there. Periods of homelessness. We are those people. And yet what we also know is that <laughs> the way to prosperity is not through individualism. It's actually not. And we were talking about this last night, you know, um, because all the celebrities came out for yes and everything else. And, and, I, and I said to you, and I've said to other people, people don't vote the way celebrities tell them to vote on anything, whether it's a political campaign or a referendum slash social campaign, because they don't actually want to be like the celebrity. They want to replace the celebrity. And, and the cults of celebrity and commercialisation and individualism that we've allowed to foster and fester undermine actual prosperity for people. You know, when people band together, when we stand together, that's when you get wage rises. We've seen it uh, recently at Ingham's. We're seeing it uh, happening at uh, Enesis. We're seeing it happen at uh, B&D Doors. We're seeing it happen uh, at, at Woodside. We've seen it happen in workplaces around the country, in the public sector, we're seeing it. We've seen it uh, with teachers in New South Wales. 
workers standing together, whatever their background, going, if we stand together as one, we actually get a better outcome. You know, there was, an, there was a little reported factoid that during the Ingham's dispute, there were two factories on, on strike and the management tried to offer one of the factories worse conditions than the other and the factory that was offered the better conditions said, we will not agree to this unless our co-workers in the other factory are offered uh, parity with us. We will not sell out our fellow workers uh, just to benefit ourselves. That solidarity is so important, and we missed that. That opportunity in this campaign didn't manifest. Oh, and, I mean, this is what... This is what's really frustrating. And for me, from the the counter-disinformationist perspective, one of the reasons why I'm like, and this is this was my fear when I started seeing it during the referendum campaign, when I started seeing the crazy UN land grab mm. tropes. And I mean, we had an incident where one of our family members was at their local golf club yeah. and was wearing a yes t-shirt or talking about I was the yes. talking about talking with someone else and they'd both gone and pre-polled and voted yes. And one one of the people they knew came up to them at the golf club and lost it and how can you possibly support the UN given what they're trying to do? And this is just such a suburban setting, you yeah. know, like women who play golf. Oh, and the and and the other thing that struck me about that story was also that, you know, Aboriginal people get enough and they need to pull themselves up. And this this Which was what the voice was, was Aboriginal <laughs> people going, please give us the capacity to advise on the solution to our problems. Why don't they just sort out their problems? Well they're trying to. No. You know, like unbelievable. But that idea that that I, I keep thinking of that woman, like, mm. screaming at your relative, going, but it's been all over the news what the UN are trying to do. You know, it hasn't. Like, that's not what the news is reporting. Some former neighbours person who hasn't had an acting mm. job in 20 years is not the news, even if they own a microphone, not the news. Yeah, that's right. And But it's this, this is my concern, and if you've read my book, you on and on, you'll understand why this is my concern, is that, the powers that be in around the no campaign for whom this is in their interest. No is in their interest, right? And it's in their interest because it's about keeping up Aboriginal people down, keeping an unequal system of social relations, and also keeping a group structurally low status so people who are on the rung above them socially can always be relied upon to enact a, a hierarchical agenda mm. to maintain like a comparative advantage, you know, and this is what's going on. There are some really dark forces around in the world. And I say this to people who were struggling with family members who were like, I don't understand why they're believing this stuff. What's really frightening from this point is that the kind of bad faith political actors who put money behind disinformation campaigns, they now know your relative or your friend believes them. They have their name and their account on lists in communities. They know how to contact them. They know what their trigger points are. They know what they respond to. All of that data is what you amalgamate in digital campaigning and it's not going to stop. If you can convince people to vote no to the voice on the basis of completely fact-free conspiracy theory about a UN land grab, the, the people who are behind pushing that theory, and I don't mean Nicola Charles. No. I mean the people who invested very heavily in the no campaign and anyone who thinks that there weren't. I mean, for example, Clive Palmer was dropping mm -hmm. rather a lot of money behind the no campaign. Jenny Reinhardt turned up at the uh, no campaign celebrations last night. I bet she did. Yeah, it was I reported in the boss's pamphlet. Yeah, well, that it must be true. So the <laughs> there is now an identified community of willful believers on Australian social media. And in the United States, the, the community of identified believers, they get milked for money all the time. Yeah. Like the Trumpists go with their conspiracy theories and their trigger points to this community of people, people who were persuaded to vote for Trump in 2016, who uh, who found themselves manipulated into 
trying to overthrow the government on January 6th and going to Washington mm. and getting arrested. I mean, some of those people are doing serious amounts of jail time now mm. because they were manipulated into this false reality that they chose to believe and pursue and believe and pursue, became separated from their best selves. And, of course, Trump is kept alive by donations from these people. Well, I was going to say, because it's not just, I mean, that, January 6th is an extreme example, right? But it's it's also just the the, the day-to-day milking of, people with limited financial capacity, you know, uh, to buy hats and flags and attend rallies and concerts and and to make donations and to fund Trump's legal defense and like that sort of thing we're going to see more and more of. And don't get me wrong, there is a legitimate space for people to donate to political campaigns, to donate to causes, to donate to charities, like philanthropic contribution to causes and issues you believe in is fine. Like it's a good social thing to do. And I say that about even even people who do those donations to causes I don't particularly believe in, right? Like there is a place for that. But what we're talking about, what you're talking about, Van, as I understand it, is a systemic, ongoing uh, milking of people based on misinformation, disinformation, lies. I mean, as I understand it, George Santos in America is now facing criminal charges. 23 indictments. Because of the way he's gone about misleading people and the and taking money from them, he took people's credit card details and and people and, who donated to his campaign willingly, he kept their credit card details and spent the money on himself. Like and and look, I'm not I'm not saying that the official no campaign is doing that or is going to do that, and I know you're not saying that either. But what we are saying is that you've got to we can't disconnect from purple because there is a. <sighs> There is a part of me goes, I just don't want to talk to people who voted no, and I don't want to engage with people. And I and I know that in in our community, like many communities, you know, two of every three people might have voted no. And you go, can I look my neighbours in the eye? And it's like, you know what? There were no street parties in any of the towns that I was in yesterday for no. It's not like with marriage equality. This was not a great unifying moment. You know, no might have won, and it may have won convincingly, but it's not like everybody feels really good about having voted no. This is sad sad to say the vast majority of people who voted no didn't care about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on Friday and today, Sunday the 15th of October, still don't care about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Would they like the gap to be closed? Sure. As long as it doesn't cost them anything. Sure, but they're not prepared to vote for anything. They're not prepared to give anything for it. Now, we might find that, and people who listen to this show might find that really difficult and and even possibly disgusting, but our neighbours are still our neighbours. We do still need to engage. We do still need to keep having conversations. And I want to say that because it's one of the things that strikes me is that there were conversations that were had. You had some things that you wrote that sparked conversations. I had conversations with people, and we and people did turn. and And it is possible. It's not easy. It's not glamorous. Sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes people will turn around and go, "Get effed!" Like they will tell you where to go, and that can be really demoralizing. And these kind of results can inspire us to, or, or, or. <laughs> or deflate us into retreating back into our shells. Oh, yeah. And, look, today I'm feeling it. Yeah. And quite honestly, like I wrote a Facebook post last night about the most important thing is to be kind. Yeah. Because kindness is learned. Kindness is learned by kindness. Yeah. And And the way that you teach people kindness is to be kind, and that's really important. But my absolute terror. And I'll put this into context. So the Albanese Labor government is proposing a really important industrial relations bill called yep. the Closing the Loopholes Bill. Yeah. And this bill is about ensuring that it, it's it's about cutting off an avenue of workplace exploitation in the form of platform employers. And can I just say that this costs working people in 
labor hire, in casuals, on platforms, the workers themselves are missing out on $9 billion. This is the work. While these loopholes exist. While these loopholes exist. If closing these loopholes will transfer, according to the businesses themselves who are complaining about this, $9 billion into wages and conditions for working people. And it will not lead to job losses. No. It will slightly reduce the profit that's made by the owners and shareholders of those companies that use these employment practices, to put it in right, the, who are loaded anyway. To put it into context, BHP's profit, $19 billion. If they had to fund the entire, for a decade, $9 billion over a decade, if they had to fund that for the whole of every labour hire worker, every casual, every platform worker, they would still have a $10 billion profit this year. This is a drop in the bucket for these multinational private equity funded corporations and they're fighting against it tooth and nail. And this is what I'm really concerned about because there is a disinformation infrastructure on social media that now knows that Australians can be turned against other Australians with disinformation. And if you can convince somebody to vote on the basis of a lie in one direction, you can convince them to vote on the basis of a lie against their own self-interest. And if we're looking at a map of electorates where people who are under economic pressure are going to be actually benefited to the tune of $9 billion if the Closing the Loopholes Bill passes, you will see a disinformation, and I I can tell you this will happen, Mm. a disinformation effort targeting those people on the basis of their no voting and whatever triggers we use to convince them that, you know, no was somehow in their interests. And that's what really terrifies me. I mean, and that terrifies me from the research I did around Trump. Like Trump was a disaster for working people in America. At the same time, Mm. he was being called a blue-collar billionaire. This is a person who was from a billionaire family who went to the the Wharton Business School, Mm. you know, who went to like, American prep school and the whole Mm. thing. Like Trump has never known a day of honest labour in his life, which is very clear in what's being exposed in his 91 indictments at the moment and all the different Mm. sort of court cases he's facing. But this lie that he somehow cared about blue-collar America or whatever, I mean, he recently spoke the, the largest auto dispute for auto workers in the Mm. United States in decades has been taking place with union members out on pickets, fighting for their jobs, fighting for their rights, fighting for their wages, and Trump turned up in a non-union shop, you know, just spoke to non-union workers at a non-union company. Like, he's absolutely no friend to the working class. And those auto workers, the the unionised auto workers, won their dispute. They did. They stood together and they won. And this is this comes, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, this will be a tactic that will be employed by the Business Council, by the BHPs, because it's $9 billion. Like, if we think that that people were willing to fight a culture war using misinformation, you know, on the off chance of just keeping a kind of power structure in place, what do we think they're going to be prepared to do for their share of $9 billion? Well, this is the thing. So we have to unionise. We have to join our union. If you're not already a union member, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join online right now. You need to be involved in the Closing the Loopholes campaign. You need to talk to your friends, to your family. You've got to have the conversations because this, this will impact not just gig economy workers, not just labour hire workers, not just casuals, but if loopholes are allowed to exist, like you were saying, Van, if if you're allowed to exploit a class of worker, that drags the rights and conditions of everybody down. If you set the standard below the floor, if you dig out the basement and you end up down in the muck and the mud and that's where people are allowed to be pushed to, that's where everyone gets dragged to. You've got to say no to the loopholes. You've got to say it's not okay. It's not right. We will not accept an Australia where someone is allowed to be employed on a on a sham contract and 
told that they're a quote-unquote independent business but can only charge what we tell them they can charge, have to do exactly what we say when we say it. In fact, in one case, and this came out in a Senate hearing about the closing the loopholes, I think it was this week or maybe the week before, Mabel, which is a contractor in the aged care and NDIS space, not registered, doesn't employ people, everybody's their quote-unquote independent business, all these contractors who, you know, Mabel's helping build businesses, helping them so much that if they take their client off the platform, they have to pay Mabel $5,000, $5,000. This is evidence to a Senate committee. Mabel has not denied this. So sorry, let's be very clear about this. So I'm a care worker yep. and I'm registered with Mabel. Yeah. And through Mabel, someone, let's give them a name, Daisy. Yeah. So someone called Daisy goes on to Mabel and says, I need a care worker. And yep. you, let's say your name is Rufus. Yeah. You turn up and you're their worker. And you and Daisy, Rufus and Daisy have a really great care relationship. Yep. And Daisy says, I'd really like you to just work for work for me. Yep. So if you go, well, I don't need Mabel anymore, I'm just going to work with Daisy, Mabel hit you for five grand. Correct. Right. That is a condition of use of their platform. Should we already start predicting the disinformation narratives that oh. are likely to be, be spread? It's going to be... Uh- it's going to shut down small businesses. It's going to uh, smash the workforce in aged care. It's going to smash the workforce in the NDIS. It's going to make Australian mining uncompetitive. It's oh, going, well, we can't have that. It's, it's going to um, mean that no one can work casually. It's going to remove flexibility from the workforce. Uh, people won't be able to uh, get a job where they uh, are able to pick up their kids from school. Is it backdoor communism? Oh, yeah, the communism tropes will already be out there. I mean, everything is communism. Everything that doesn't support the boss making more money is communism. I mean, the voice was communism van, you know, mm. this, uh, this idea that we'd get a group of people together and give advice to elected representatives who would ultimately, under the power of the Constitution, make lawful decisions. I mean, that's clearly communism. This is fundamentally... A, <laughs> This is not just about culture. This is this is about culture, but it is also about the economic realities that we are going to live under for the next 10 and 20 years. I also want to acknowledge the work of Jeremy Walker, who's an academic at UTS, who identified the involvement of the Atlas Group, which is like a, a network of fossil fuel interests, yep. who set up um, AstroTurf, which is fake grassroots organisations and get involved in disinformation campaigns to stymie climate action. By the way, uh, he identified the involvement of the Atlas Group of fossil fuel companies campaigning against... The Voice. Oh! What a coincidence. What a coincidence. I mean, and this is this is what I am genuinely concerned about. You know, like the reality of post-Brexit Britain is an absolutely smashed economy. And the same thing happened during the Brexit referendum in the UK yeah. was that people were told lies by the pro-Brexiteers. Yeah. They were told that £365 million a day would go back into the National Health Service. Well, the National Health Service in Britain is on the verge of collapse. Yeah. And because that's not what happened when they left the EU. What happened when they left the EU was that they lost most of their trading partners, a lot of regulations around, for example, the quality of their food. Um, chicken pus is now a thing in the British diet again, uh, which is extraordinary to consider what it was like even beforehand. Um, but the... This is the the thing: is that morality free, selfish interests that have the resources to run disinformation campaigns once they identify a mark, you know, in any typical con, yeah, the victim is called a mark. Once they identify a mark, they go after them, and so it is really, really important that if we have no voters in our lives. We find a way of bringing them back to, of bringing them back. And when I talk about the no voters, I mean specifically the people who went for the tropes, yeah. went for the UN land grab, went for the backdoor communism, went for the lies, is looking at where they're positioned in terms of some really dangerous things that might happen to them through online manipulation by the worst people in the world. And the only protection for that is to get out ahead of it. Yeah. 
um, is to speak honestly about these things and to create positive and proactive community because people respond. We learn this in the media. People respond to advertising when they're angry and they're frightened, right? Nobody buys a new car because they're feeling really great that day. They buy a new car because they think that will be a vehicle, quite literally, to them feeling better about their day. And there's another saying in in the media, it's an old TV one, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, yeah. the the commercial media relies on people buying advertising in order to be sustainable. And disinformation works in the same way. If you make people angry and frightened, you can convince them, you can advertise what your cause or your product or your candidate, you know, is, mm. and people are in a more susceptible space, which is which was what what was so the whole point of the UN land grab trope, this idea that a nefarious international organisation that you don't really know much about, which is kind of scary that's involved in things that involve war and taking over governments, the idea that this unaccountable institution, mm. which it isn't, by the way, yeah. like, um, but the idea that this thing, this conglomerate you don't know much about is coming in the middle of the night to steal your land through nefarious means is Quite terrifying to people. Can I just say, you've just described banks. Like, like <laughs> yeah, I can, have described banks. Can, you know, like if we're worried about, if you're worried that someone's going to take your farm or your backyard or your house, that's banks. And, and if you're a renter, it's real estate agents. Like we need to understand reality a little bit more here. Like we live in a in a capitalist society uh, and a democratic capitalist society. Yes, it's a marriage between two different political ideologies that when balanced actually doesn't do too bad. There are problems and we try and knock the hard edges off it. But like the only people taking land are banks. That's, that's what they do. They foreclose on mortgages. They lend money to people and they foreclose on mortgages. You know, if you're worried about your economic status and situation, if you're concerned that someone's going to get more than you, then what you're concerned about is you're concerned about multinational corporations. You're concerned about banks. You're actually concerned about, if you're concerned about accountability, foreign private equity funds are the least accountable organizations in the world, trillions of dollars in massive pools, buying up huge amounts of assets around the world. Now, I'm not talking here about, you know, the open and transparent publicly listed corporations, who, by the way, sometimes do act terribly, but at least they're publicly listed and we can hold them to some account. I'm not talking about your superannuation fund, which, again, you're a member of, you have some control over. I'm talking about private pools of money that do take people's land, that do smash jobs, that crush companies in order to make a 25, 35% return for investors, regardless of the human cost. If you voted no, or you know someone who voted no, because they were worried about the UN land grab, whatever, any of those kind of tropes, point out to them that what they're actually talking about is banks. What they're actually worried about is the rampant forces of capitalism who would be happy to take your home, your farm, your children's home, leave you homeless. One only needs to look at the wealthiest country in the world and its huge proportion of homeless people to understand that capitalism does not care about you, has no interest. It's That's the issue we have to wrestle with here and that's what we have to go you know what if you're feeling disempowered if you're feeling like you don't have control over your life it's not because the less than one million people who are first nations australians whose cultures have been here for sixty thousand years or so have asked to advise the government on policy that hasn't disempowered you that hasn't taken anything away from you what is disempowering you what is taking things away from you uh, corporate executives, often in foreign boardrooms, making decisions about your wages, about your working hours, about your value as a person based on their profit line. That's what's actually disempowering us. And we can, and people do, stand up against that. And when we do stand together against that, the, the, the sense of belonging, the sense of empowerment is overwhelming. And I think we felt during the voice campaign 
because we were coming together that we were going to overcome. Misinformation undermined that. People's fear undermined that. But the struggle is not over. No. The struggle is not over. You know, I said this online today, like I'm not going anywhere. And, you know, I didn't vote yes for solidarity for a day. Solidarity is forever. That's right. You know, and my yes today is my yes tomorrow. It's my yes forever. Solidarity forever. And, you know, and, and what can, a lot of people have written to me going, I actually don't know what to do. Well, join a union. Yeah. And if, you, if you're not working, join the Labor Party. Yeah. You know, be part of the political party that represents the union movement, that needs volunteers, that needs policy people, that needs a wide infrastructure of Australians who are willing to put human resources behind political projects for fairness. You know, the Labor Party can only do as much as the people let it do, but a coordinated collective strategy of working together for that fairness and equilibrium. And, you know, there have been questions around the voice about what is this going to mean for Anthony Albanese? Well, actually, it vindicates Albanese as a man of his word yeah. because Albanese committed to putting the referendum for the voice in front of the people in the first, first 12, yeah. the first term of his government. And that was a policy priority. That was announced on the night that he won the election that he would do that. And even when it became clear that the polls were against the government, it went ahead because he kept his word. He kept a promise. Now, as a Prime Minister, if Anthony Albanese is making a commitment to closing the loopholes and his government is making a commitment to working people and bringing fairness into the workplace and regulating the companies that would otherwise exploit us, we have every right to believe them. Mm. They are not former Neighbours actors who've just picked up a microphone and are tossing off about the UN. You know, they are a government that are accountable to the people and the evidence in front of us is that even when it's unpopular, like a promise mm. is a promise and a promise has got us to this point. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I'll just say again, Hawke lost all but one referendum, and he ran a number of them, never lost an election. And he even ran a referendum during an election and lost the referendum but still won the election. So, yeah, look, it's a, it's a, it's a hard day for a lot of people. There'll be a lot of soul-searching going on, but do not lose hope. And as I always say on the weekend wrap, and as you have said on social media, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other. Van, thank you for joining me on the weekend wrap. It's been a really special episode. Can a I just one. thank you? Because obviously I have all kinds of weird security concerns and it's not always easy for me to go out to ballot boxes and things. People can get a bit weird. This man, Ben Davison, the man I love, the husband I chose, has been absolutely relentless in his solidarity. He's been up at hours of the morning that I never see, train stations, farmers markets, pre-poll from one end of our electorate to the end of the other electorate next to us and because he believes it. And I'm so proud of you and you carry both of us in terms of our activist commitment. You're a wonderful person thank and you. I want to thank you for the work that you did. You're a wonderful person too. And, you know, you're- and we have a wonderful dog. Look at him. Yeah. Look, thank you for listening to this very special episode of The Weekend Wrap. Van and I will be back on Wednesday. Remember to like, share, comment. Uh, you can, of course, support us through buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Uh, but I appreciate people are probably a bit tapped out. There's been election after election and referendums and all the rest. Uh, and I know it's a struggle out there at the moment. So mm. look, It's this, an activist strategy to recharge and re-engage when you are ready. And this podcast will always be free to listen to and to download. Uh, it's more important to us that people get the message uh, and that's what every dollar goes towards anyway and the final word I'd like to say solidarity to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians forever